This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. Tonight's speaker, Ben Frabel, who is the Collection Manager for Marine Vertebrates, one of four world-class collections here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Ben attended the University of Washington in Seattle, where he received degrees in aquatic and fishery sciences and ecology and evolutionary biology. While there, he worked for a time in the Burke Museum Fish Collection, a seminal moment in his career as that's when he decided he'd pursue a career in collections. After college, Ben worked for a time in, as a collections and research assistant at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. From there, he pursued graduate school at Oregon State University, studying the evolution and biogeography of a group of South American freshwater fishes with such fun names as headstanders and flannel mouth charcerins, and also served as an ichthyology collections manager for several years. Just weeks after defending, Ben was offered his position here at Scripps, where he's been since January of 2016. Ben manages the extensive collection of preserved fishes here at Scripps. He facilitates access to the collections and specimens for researchers all over the world and assists with fish identification and specimen collection. He's also a marine fishes editor for the scientific journal Zotaxa. In the little time he has for research, he primarily studies taxonomy, systematics, and biogeography. Addressing questions such as, what are the boundaries between species? Is this a previously undescribed species? How long have lineages been separated and why? And how have groups diversified over time? We are particularly excited for Ben's talk this evening since Birch just last week put a rare football fish recently added to the Scripps Collection on temporary display in our Oddities Hidden Heroes of the Scripps Collection exhibit. So please join us in welcoming Ben for his talk entitled 2021 A Football Fish Odyssey. Thank you so much, Harry, for the introduction. Um, again, my name is Ben Frabel. I'm the uh, collection manager here. And yeah, I'm going to uh, just give a little talk here about how we ended up with this beautiful football fish here at the Birch and at uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And maybe I'll learn a little bit more about deep sea anglerfish along the way. So uh, my major involvement in the, the saga of the football fish, fish of 2021 started with this email um, back in November um, last year. This is from a local news station, Eric Page, at the local NBC station. He sent an email to the communications department at Scripps asking for somebody at Scripps to confirm an identification of a photograph a viewer named Jay Beeler submitted. Um, and, you know, I love what I see one of these in my inbox because it's okay. always, you know, sometimes it could be something really interesting, some, sometimes not so much. Um, but I get these kinds of emails all the time. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's a lot of time titled Creature ID and uh, has a fun picture associated with it. Some of the times they're fairly easy. Some of you in the crowd who are familiar with fish may be able to identify these two. Um, on the left here, we have our beautiful California moray. And on the right here, uh, a Pacific angel shark. So easy ones. And sometimes they're a little bit harder, maybe the... the <laughs> 
<laughs> Sometimes they're just, uh, I don't know, looks like a leftover turkey or something like that. Uh, um, but this, you know, is also provides a fun mystery for folks like me. Um, and I, you know, kind of recognize that as the, the head of a giant sea bass, hopefully not illegally harvested. And then uh, this fish is a fairly common, but uh, not often seen, our local toadfish, the plain fit midshipmen. And I can actually probably give a little lecture about those guys, too. They're, they're really fascinating. <laughs> but you know, these are, these are all fairly common local fish. But every once in a while, we get one of these emails, and it's uh, a quite a bit more exciting. So that uh, first email I showed, uh, saving the picture, this is the picture that I got. Yeah. And as soon as I saw it, you know, he, he already had recognized it as an anglerfish. But as soon as I saw it, I was, I, oh, I noticed this is a Pacific football fish. This is something really exciting. But one thing you will notice is this is not the one that is on display back there. Um, but before I go further into that, I um, just kind of uh, want to talk about kind of why I get the, these emails in the first place and how I was able to figure out this is a Pacific football fish right off the bat. Um, so as Harry already uh, said, I'm the collection manager of the Marine Vertebrate Collection um, just down the hill here at Scripps. The Marine Vertebrate Collection is one of the four oceanographic collections here at, here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. We also have benthic invertebrates, pelagic invertebrates, uh, and a geological collection. So, you know, invertebrates living on the bottom, uh, invertebrates living up in the water column, like squid, zooplankton, that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, a geological collection made up of rocks, sediment cores, microfossils, that kind of thing. And if you want to learn more about all four of the collections, head on into the Oddities exhibit if you haven't already. Um, the Marine Vertebrate Collection kind of stems from a collection that already existed at Scripps uh, from the earliest times, but was formalized when uh, Carl and Laura Hubbs moved here from the University of Michigan in 1944. Uh, Carl is a prolific ichthyologist. Well, Carl and Laura are prolific ichthyologists, and uh, he was very interested in learning more about fishes of the Eastern Pacific, especially Southern California down the coast of Baja and into the Gulf of California. So he immediately started you know, going and trying to learn more, collecting fish, bringing samples back to the lab, trying to learn about these specimens, and rapidly accumulated a lot of pickled fish in jars um, and began to formalize it as a collection. Uh, so today we have about 2 million specimens and about 140,000 jars, representing about 6,000 different species of fish from all over the world. Um, these specimens primarily date from the 1940s onward, but we do have preserved material going back to the 1880s that was given to us by other institutions or kind of existed back to the San Diego Marine Biology Association days. And we also maintain a tissue collection for genetic purposes and a skeletal collection for reference and, and other things like that. Uh, this material has come from all over the world, not just collected by Scripps researchers, but by other researchers and also members of the general public, those types of things. Um, and as you can see, uh, see here, you know, we have stuff from every major ocean, but there seems to be a little concentration. Uh, <laughs> so uh, our, our collection historically kind of has two major focuses. The first are fishes of the Eastern Pacific, especially the tropical Eastern Pacific. I mean, you can't, you can't even see Baja with all these dots. Um, and then fishes of the open ocean with a particular focus on the Pacific Ocean. And this primarily encompasses deep sea fish. So I like to show this as good examples of fishes from the Eastern Pacific and fishes uh, from the deep ocean. And uh, something that's really fun that I noticed when I, after I put this slide together is that all of the fish 
on this slide occur right here in the waters of Southern California, except for this one beautiful rainbow wrasse. So this <laughs> is uh, pretty astounding. Um, and if you're wondering what the collection looks like, it pretty much looks like a library um, with compactorized shelving, but instead of books, uh, we have 140,000 jars. And the collection is utilized by researchers all over the world to come and ask questions about fish evolution, fish ecology, biology, uh, historical questions from, these preserved, from this preserved material. Uh, researchers can come and visit. I also ship fish in the mail to people. Um, <laughs> and, and we have an online database here that you know, researchers use to look up uh, all of our information associated with each one of these specimens. So as uh, part, of, part of this, um, this is not a static collection. It's continually growing, new materials being added all the time, um, not just by ourselves, but by people, again, all over the world. And a lot of this comes from scientific collecting efforts, you know, on maybe oceanographic cruises uh, or on, in beautiful coral reefs uh, or even from fish at the market, which are the ones up here. And every once in a while, I'm lucky enough to be able to participate in this as well. I'm not just in the back shelving things um, in the collection. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've had a great opportunity to do a lot of um, deep sea fish collecting. Um, I've been working with other researchers here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, Dr. Anella Choi's lab, and she's invited me on a couple of research cruises to help with uh, identifying some of the amazing deep water organisms that they're collecting out there. So these are just some examples of uh, some particularly uh, a beautiful um, deep sea fish that we have caught the last few years. And through this, as well as mentorship from folks here at Scripps, including uh, former collection manager Cindy Kilpadlo, who taught me a lot about how to tell uh, dragonfish and lanternfish and all these fun deep sea fish apart, uh, I've come to really learn a significant amount about these deep sea fish, and this has helped um, with my ability to recognize a Pacific football fish when I see it. Beyond that, um, as Harry mentioned, a lot, some of the, a lot of the research that we do in the fish collection when we have time to um, involves the taxonomy, so that's figuring out, and systematics, so that's figuring out how species are related to each other, what the boundaries between species are, and every once in a while doing fun things like getting to describe new species. So these are uh, just some examples, uh, I think, of nine, nine species that have been described by myself or other members of the collection over the last five years. It's always uh, very satisfying, and you can see some beautiful deep sea fish as well as nice coral reef fish here. Uh, well, so now that I've given a little bit of a background about you know how we got here, let's go back to the football fish story. And so I said for me it started with that email from Eric Page at NBC, but the 2021 saga actually starts a little bit earlier, back in May 2021. So this is round one. Um, I saw this as if I was on vacation, and I saw this as a Facebook post that somebody sent me, and my phone started blowing up. Um, on May 8th uh, last year, in Crystal Cove State Park, uh, just north of Laguna Beach in Orange County, a beautiful black anglerfish was found on the beach. Um, and some posted about it on Facebook, and luckily it was recovered by the uh, park rangers at Crystal Cove and uh, saved. So this fantastic specimen um, was found pretty fresh, washed up, on, washed up on the beach there. And this was pretty amazing. This was the sixth record ever of a Pacific football fish at least collected and brought to a scientific collection uh, in California. 
We hadn't been seen since 2001. Uh, that, so, you know, almost 20, year, 20 years previously. It was a big deal. I was away on vacation. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I was in touch with one of my colleagues, Dr. Bill Lute, who's the curator of fishes at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. And he sprang into action, got in touch with the, the park, park Service at Crystal Cove, uh, who had saved the specimen, and went, drove down to Orange County, recovered the specimen, and brought it, preserved it, and cataloged it at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. Um, so here she is. He took this beautiful photograph of the specimen, so the Pacific football fish, its scientific name, um, which I'll say a few more times in the lectures, Hymantolophus sagamius. Hymantolophus imantos means strap, um, and that's a reference to kind of the thickness of the, the lure, and lophus means crest, and that's just kind of a, a standard epithet that's used for, for uh, angler fishes, uh, denoting that they have this uh, kind of uh, thing coming out of the top of their head. And then the, the species epithet, Sagamius, is a reference to the first specimen of Pacific football fish that was ever discovered was collected in Sagami Bay um, in, in Honshu, Japan. And so it's Sagamius. Uh, so this is the, yeah, the 29th specimen in a collection, the sixth specimen ever found in California. It was a huge deal, and it got a lot of press, um, including my favorite headline here in the middle from KQED. A Pacific football fish just arrived in California, and now it's time to leave California. <laughs> but it got international news, and you know, I, I, I was minorly associated with this, and, and, but it was a, a really great uh, way to spread, spread the press about a, Pacific, uh, about a Pacific football fish and a super rare fish. And it just kind of, you know, after May, June, it kind of faded away into the news cycle, whatever, whatever. I didn't really think too much more about it. And then I finally got that email in November with this fish. As soon as I saw it, my heart started racing, and I was like, oh, this is great. Bill got one earlier that year. Now we can bring one down here to Scripps. And so I immediately responded, where, where did this picture get taken? When was this picture taken? Turns out the picture had been taken about a week previously, uh, but just north, right here at Black's Beach. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I found out after the fact a lot of people had taken pictures and put them on Instagram, but nobody thought to tell the lifeguards or contact anybody here. So I didn't find out about it and for about a week. Uh, went up there, looked around, but you know, a dead fish on the beach after a week of tides and seagulls, well, there wasn't really any, any remnants to be found. But we had some great photographs, including these taken by the gentleman who sent them into the news, Jay Beeler. Um, so we actually did include this as a collection record at Scripps, as an image record instead of just a specimen, because we do exa know exactly when it came up, where it was. We have some relative sizes, and we have great photographs. And, you know, I was, I was pretty bummed to not be able to get, to bring the specimen back to Scripps. But after, you know, I looked at the pictures a little bit more and thought about it, you know, I, I looked at the specimen, and I was like, well, it's pink, not black, which means it's probably been sitting in the sun for a while. It's sun-bleached. It also has some, some nasty fin damage back here. These fins are supposed to be black, not, not pink. Um, it looks like it's been nibbled on a little bit. The lure has most certainly been nibbled on a little bit. Um, and then you can also see that there's some, some stuff coming out of the mouth. Um, it's a little, little bloated. This fish may have been a little rotten. So maybe I didn't really want to preserve that. It was kind of deal with, the, deal with the rotten fish. So, you know, I, I was telling myself it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, but I didn't have long... <clears throat> Uh, to, to, to kind of wallow on that one, because not, a few, not, not but a few weeks later, I got this email from my colleague at Southwest Fisheries Science Center, Dr. John Hyde, uh, entitled, You Want This Fish? 
Sounds like it washed up in Encinitas. I'll try to grab it, including this picture. <laughs> Taken by a lifeguard, Jonathan Strickland, uh, up there. Uh, so this fish was found on the morning of December 10th uh, by a local uh, surfer, Bethany Valverde, who decided, well, she, the surf didn't look so great, so maybe she'd just take a walk at Swami's. She was walking down the beach, and she noticed this black blob, um, and uh, she thought maybe it was a tar ball related to the recent, at that time, Orange County oil spill, because some tar balls had been showing up here in La Jolla, and so she was worried, walked over to it, realized this tar ball had a very large mouth, um, <clears throat> and it was something different. And then her and other folks at the beach that morning very quickly let the lifeguards know. The lifeguards recovered the specimen, kept it on ice, and John was great enough to go down and grab the fish. And then I, and then, but he had to get on a Zoom meeting, so I drove up to his house, um, met H.J. Walker there, and we picked it up from his front yard. So we got the fish, and if you look up in the corner here, you can see actually H.J.'s dog was eyeing the fish. He had to keep, keep him away. <laughs> but uh, it was just amazing. It was so amazing to finally get to see this in person, you know, not just from the images. I mean, it, you know, to, to be, have a specimen to examine, to add to the collection here, to learn more about, and just to have another specimen. This ended up being the, the 30th specimen in a collection of the species ever since it was described by, by science in, in the, um, uh, 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 over 100 years ago. And here's another really great photograph that, that I took of the specimen that had uh, made the rounds. So, you know, this also, uh, thanks to the great efforts of, well, social media and our communications department, uh, made the rounds in, in national and international news, including my favorite news source here, the La Jolla Light, actually picked it up, and I got a paper copy of the La Jolla Light with it in it, which I'm really excited about. And it was great, and it brought a lot of people, you know, in to think about, to, to want to know more, maybe to be a little horrified by, uh, how life, uh, the life that lives in the, the deep ocean, the largest habitat on the planet. So at this point, you're probably jumping out of your seat like, Ben, you gotta, you gotta give us some more information about football fish. Like, you can't just keep saying it, you can't just uh, uh, keep, keep going on about that. So what are football fishes? And here is a great illustration um, by Lutkin, 1887, of the uh, internal anatomy of a football fish. When we look at it from the inside, you can see it is literally just a swimming head <laughs> with a lot of teeth. <laughs> so fo football fishes um, are part of a larger group of organisms known as anglerfishes. Um, this is an order called Lophiiformes, um, one of the, the numerous orders of fishes. Uh, it's my first uh, trivia word for you this evening. Here comes two more. Um, this group of fish are all um, evolutionary related by having had an ancestor that evolved its first spine coming off of its dorsal fin into an elong elongated bony structure with a little tip at the end of it. This elongated structure, kind of, I guess, the fishing rod part of it is called the elysium, and the little tip, the bulb at the end, is called the esca, the lure, if you will. So those are my other two uh, vocab words for this evening. So all of these fish evolved from an ancestor uh, that had this kind of thing. And they don't just occur in the deep ocean. Anglerfish and their relatives, there are shallow water species that live on coral reef. There are some um, that live in muddy bottom habitat. And a lot of the more shallow uh, groups tend to live on the bottom, whereas the offshore groups, like the deep sea anglerfish, live up in the water column. Um, another characteristic of this group is when they have pelvic fins. These are the fins that you know usually would be kind of down here on the fish. Uh, they're actually in front of their pectoral fins, so in the front. And we'll see some, I'll talk about that a little bit more recently. And some of these, surprisingly, are actually commercially important. Um, 
So there are five major groups down here at the bottom, and I'm just going to uh, go through these really quickly to kind of show you that we're not just going to talk about football fish. We're going to learn a little bit more about fish diversity. So the first of these groups that uh, folks may be most familiar with, these are uh, monkfishes and goosefishes. If you've ever gone to a nice fish shop or a nice restaurant, you may have had monkfish on the menu, uh, or, or Spain. It's a, a, a fairly common in Spanish cuisine. Uh, monkfish is also known as the poor man's lobster. The meat is nice and light, and it's kind of sweet, like lobster meat. Uh, these tend to occur in sh shallow to deep water, muddy environments. They sit on the bottom. They have this uh, mean visage. So usually when you see them at the market, they cut the head off so you don't have to see that face. Um, and, and they kind of blend in with the sand. But they do have this little lure, like the deep-sea anglerfish, that they, you can see here in this, in this gif that it's waving around in front of its face to try to tempt a small fish uh, towards you. If you've ever been to Pike Place Market in Seattle and gone to the fish stand, they always have a monkfish right there. And if you get too close, the guy pulls a string that's connected to his tail and scares you. <laughs> <laughs> so don't fall for it. <laughs> um, these are commercially harvested, and actually um, there's a, uh, a little concern that they're over-harvested in the North Atlantic and Mediterranean, but they, were, they have been a special cuisine going back to ancient times in those, in those regions. Uh, the next major group are the batfishes, the agacephaloidei. Uh, uh, batfishes live in shallow to, to deep water environments. Um, and they're a little different than their relatives. They actually have a kind of a hard exoskeleton. They're, they're a very robust body. And they have these hilarious pectoral fins that they kind of walk around on the bottom. And they, what's really interesting with them also is their lure, their esca, actually comes out through a little hole in the top of their head right in front of their mouth here. And there's evidence that you know it's bright white, so it's probably attracting something visually. But there's evidence that they actually release chemical cues from it to attract prey. Uh, right, And then... Uh, right in front of their head. And also, at least with the, the case of the lipstick batfish, they're using this beautiful uh, lipstick to probably attract prey and uh, scuba divers as well. Um, but we actually, uh, batfish, there's, there's one species that rarely occurs up here. This, this one here is called the rondel batfish, uh, named after the rondels, those little uh, bullseyes on its back, and that tends to occur in deep water and is caught occasionally by fishermen uh, up here in California or in uh, San Diego. The next group, those of you that are scuba divers might be more familiar with spending hours trying to find these on the reef. Uh, these are your frog fishes and hand fishes. These uh, very graceful swimmers um, live and on coral reefs or rocky habitat or maybe in seaweed. They're masters of camouflage and disguise. Um, you can barely see the frogfish up in this, up in this um, video here. Um, they mimic sponges, coral, rock, seaweed. And they kind of just sit tight. As you can see, they're not great at moving. Um, and wave this, again, wave this esca around in front of their head. You can see this one up here is kind of maybe mimicking a little worm, luring stuff to their, to, to their mouths to be eaten. Uh, some of their southern hemisphere relatives, the handfish, are actually... Um, critically endangered because they only lay their eggs on specific types of algae and coral that have been uh, uh, it devastated by climate change or human harvest. Um, and they, uh, species of handfish has actually been declared extinct. Um, is the first marine fish actually declared extinct um, because it hasn't been seen since the 1800s. However, it was only seen a few times in the 1800s, so there's some debate as to whether Maybe this, and the specimens are pretty badly damaged, so there's a, some evidence that eh, maybe they just, it's this other type of handfish. Anyways, it's a whole debate. Don't need to get into it right now. 
the, the second to last group are the coffin fishes or toad fishes. Now these guys are a little more obscure. They tend to live in deep water uh, habitats on the bottom and very little is known about their biology. We've only actually been learning a lot more about them in recent years with the rise of using remotely operated vehicles to explore the sea floor around the world. And as we've been doing this, we've noticed that they're actually pretty common. Um, they, like their other relatives here, you can see they have these two pectoral fins that they use to kind of prop themselves up on the bottom. And then they're using these little pelvic fins to also walk around. And uh, again, graceful, graceful swimmers, I'm sure. Uh, and they have a little esca, this little lure in front of their head that you know, they uh, may use. But they're generally living in low light to no light environments. So it's, it's kind of unclear as to what's going on with these guys. This doesn't glow like in deep sea anglerfish. And finally, we come to the ceratioids, the deep sea anglerfishes, the group that we're all here to talk about. And then I'm going to go to another slide because I have so much to say about them. Uh, so deep, deep sea anglerfishes are globally distributed. They're found throughout the world's open, open oceans. The open ocean is the largest habitat on the planet, and they're found in, in pretty much all of them, from all the way up to a couple specimens in the Arctic, down to a couple specimens in the, uh, uh, the Southern Ocean, and uh, throughout the, uh, the other three major oceans here. You can see this is a distribution map of where all the anglerfish and collections were collected uh, circa about 2009. And I don't know if these uh, gaps are artificial from sampling efforts or maybe they don't occur in these gyres, I do not know. Um, but anglerfish are generally live in the deep ocean and they tend to live in what's called the bathypelagic, below about 1,000 meters or about 3,000 or so feet. Um, they're living in this habitat where there's no, no sunlight penetrates. There are some species that come a little bit shallower, and you can find them maybe around six or 700 feet. And there are spe species that, go, that live on the bottom all the way down kind of you know, to the abyssal plain, down over, over 11,000 feet down. Uh, so they're very widely distributed. There's, all, there's actually over 165 different species of deep sea anglerfish in 11 different families. Uh, they're very morphologically diverse. And they also range dramatically in size from the one of, uh, well, I guess technically the smallest uh, sexually mature um, fish, which is a, a male anglerfish that's a about a quarter inch long, to um, some of the larger, the sea devils that get to, to about three, three feet or so. Um, so I just a little bit about the history of their discovery, at least uh, by Western scientists. Um, so the first anglerfish encountered by, by Europeans uh, was found on a beach after a storm in Greenland in 1833. And it was, it was promptly given to uh, Captain Carl Holbel, who was uh, stationed in Greenland and was an expert in the fauna of Greenland. He's an early kind of a naturalist studying the, the organisms of Greenland. He immediately recognized this as, well, it's got this little lure on its head, but this is pretty different than a monkfish. It's pitch black. Um, so he took it uh, to a Danish a zoologist named Johan Reinhardt, who ended up describing it as Hymantolophus greenlandicus. So the first anglerfish ever discovered by Western scientists was actually a football fish, the sister species to our Pacific football fish. Um, and as you can see, very creative scientific name there because it was found in Greenland, greenlandicus. Um, and it was actually also uh, Captain Hobel, who was responsible for finding the second species of anglerfish described to science. About 12 years later, he brought, brought in a fish that ended up being called the warty sea devil to uh, this researcher over here, uh, also a Danish zoologist named Heinrich Kruyer, and he described, uh, named it Ceratius hoiboi in honor of Captain Hobel. After this point, a few more anglerfish were described. 
but there were, it wasn't really until the 1870s with the boom of deep water oceanographic exploration, the HMS Challenger expedition around the world, um, and then subsequent expeditions like the Prince of Monaco expeditions, those kind of things where all people started exploring the deep ocean, bringing back all these anglerfish, and ichthyologists really dug in and started ex discovering the full diversity of these fishes. So as I already mentioned, we, today we are fairly well acquainted at least with the variety of forms, although the, the biology of anglerfish is still a lot of armchair science, a lot of guessing based on their morphology. So in this diagram we have the 11 different families of anglerfish. You can see they're ex exceptionally morphologically diverse. And, uh, well, some people may say, horrific looking. Um, I think they're actually very fascinating. You have, and, and in here you have, scientists have come up with such fun names as dreamers, uh, bearded sea devils, whip-nose anglerfish, hairy anglerfish, and the wolf trap anglerfishes, these guys here in the middle. So I will spend a little time focusing on this one here, you may have noticed are football fish. So football fishes are in a family called Hemantilophidae, as you know from the, from the genus name. And it's not just the Atlantic and Pacific football fish. There's actually 22 different species of football fishes around the world, uh, two of which are actually found in Californian waters, not just the Pacific football fish. Uh, these are one of the larger groups of uh, uh, larger angler fishes in terms of size. They can get up to about 16 or so inches long. Um, only surpassed by the warty sea devils that get up to about a meter long, three feet long. And they're characterized by having very thick skin with these little dermal spinules, these like hard spines all over the body. It's kind of like handling them. These things are super sharp. I actually stabbed my finger while I was holding this thing and started bleeding. But um, they're, they're kind of like puffer fish, I guess, in terms of uh, trying to handle it. And they're also characterized by having these little papillae, these little kind of uh, skin pads all around their mouth, which you don't really see in other types of anglerfish. You only see them in a couple other groups. And I'll get back to those. Remember that. I'll get back to that in a second. As I said, there's 22 species, and they're mostly differentiated. You know, they have some differentiation, uh, different differences in their head shape, but a lot of the differentiation is actually in the shape of their lures. Some of them have these very elaborate, weird, I don't even know what's going on with this one, uh, lures, and uh, some of them are a little more simple, like this one up here. Uh, as you can see back in our collection, the Pacific football fish has a very beautiful, ornate uh, lure. It's actually the most widespread family of anglerfish. They've been found all the way up in the Arctic and throughout, uh, but usually throughout the subtropical and tropical regions of the world's uh, major oceans. Many of these specimens, um, at least adult specimens, are actually known from beaching, just like ours here. They're found washed up dead on beaches. People don't really know why, but occasionally they show up on beaches. They've also been found in the stomach of sperm whales, um, and occasionally are actually caught in commercial fishing, commercial bottom trawling. So maybe they don't really live up in the water column that we, the way we think they do. Uh, the Pacific football fish, um, as its name implies, mostly occurs in the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it has been found here in California now eight times. Um, also in Japan, uh, Hawaii, uh, Russia, Indonesia, and uh, Chile. So kind of throughout. <laughs> and Ecuador as well. And you may ask about the common name, because it doesn't necessarily look like an American football, but this thing really looks like a soccer ball. Um, so the common name is actually a reference to what the rest of the world calls a soccer ball, <laughs> not an American football. Um, so I just I'm give a little bit, little bit more about the general biology of anglerfish, because this group is, I mean, 
They, from a very early age, when I first kind of was getting interested in marine life, it was all, I think a lot of people just you know hear about an anglerfish maybe in a documentary, and it's just captivating. This is a really unique fish. You know, as I mentioned already, this whole group is held together, related by the presence of this fishing lure in front of their head. But you know, in deep sea anglerfish, it's they can get very elaborate and ornate, and they're actually species specific. So each species has a distinct arrangement of the filaments of, of this lure. We don't really quite know why, but it's helpful for us as scientists to be able to differentiate them. They come in all shapes and sizes, and they're generally, but not always, kind of dangled in front of the anglerfish's head. And you can see this beautiful, hairy anglerfish here. But uh, the lures in deep sea anglerfish, unlike their shallow water relatives, actually glow. They provide a light that glows in front of the fish's head. Unlike other deep, deep sea organisms that produce their own light, the anglerfish aren't, aren't producing the light. They actually, in the tip of the lure, they have a little bulb, and in there is a glowing bacteria. And this is kind of an artistic rendition of what those bacteria look like. Um, these are uh, potentially in the genus Vibrio, so related to kind of glowing bacteria that you find in other organisms as well, and in, in things like uh, red tides and that kind of thing. And the bacteria likely enter the esca at some point during the anglerfish's development through this little opening here, in this, you can see in this diagram, and live on the substrate that anglerfish provides. The anglerfish likely, um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna do a lot of likely, maybe, we don't know, because a lot of this is, we don't really know, we're kind of guessing based on the anatomy because these fish are so rare. Um, but you know, the anglerfish likely provides a substrate for, for the bacteria to live on, and in return, the bacteria glows for the anglerfish. And some, and, uh, but a lot of times, the bulb of bacteria is actually surrounded by darkly pigmented uh, skin, or darkly pigmented tissue, so you can't see that glowing all the time. And the anglerfish actually has a lot of musculature around there to control how the light comes out of that bulb. Um, some, in some anglerfish, the bulb's kind of here, and they'll, they'll squeeze it up into a, a translucent window area, so it kind of flashes the light. Um, and others is kind of continuously glowing, but threaded through the tissue through channels to go, just make these little tips glow uh, around the, the top of the fin. And the color can also vary pretty dramatically, at least from what people have observed. So a lot of times, you know, it's kind of just this general bluish green color. That's kind of the, the most common color for bioluminescence. But people have observed such colors as yellowish green to orange to purple to blue or white. Um, you know, maybe some of those was from after a few drinks on the boat, I don't know. Um, but it's pretty amazing. It may indicate that the anglerfish use some sort of lensing to change the color of the light uh, being emitted. And actually, a really cool story related to this is a, a Pacific football fish was found in 1960 floating alive at the surface off the coast of Japan. It was brought to some researchers and they were able to keep it alive in an aquarium for about a week. Uh, as they kept it alive, it was probably not very happy um, in the tank, they noticed that when it was disturbed, instead of just, it would aggressively try to swim away, but it would also eject bioluminescent goo out of the end of the lure. So maybe make a cloud of this bacteria and use that to kind of distract a predator and get away. This is the only time this has ever been observed in an anglerfish. People have kind of observed them moving the muscle there, but nothing came out. Maybe they already ejected it in the net. Um, but it's an amazing discovery from our Pacific football fish. So why, why would it glow? You know, a lot, well, a lot of organisms in the deep sea produce light for many reasons. Uh, you know, down there, that's kind of all, there's not natural light, so they're using light for communication. They might use it for recognizing the same species. They might use it as um, camouflage. 
if you're schooling with a bunch of other fish with light all over your sides, you just kind of become this constellation, kind of distracts a predator, like zebra stripes that can't pick out an individual fish. And, and, but it's a double-edged sword. It also, if you're by yourself it, you, and you light up, you're a beacon out there in the darkness. And the anglerfish kind of take advantage of that. You know, they provide this beacon, as, as uh, was seen in uh, Finding Nemo here. Dorian Nemo swim up to this beautiful light that they see in the deep sea, and of course they find out it is the mouth of a deep sea anglerfish. And, but how anglerfish feed is not really quite, not really known. Nobody's ever actually observed them eat, but it's thought that they eat similarly to their shallow water relatives, utilizing suction, this huge mouth, and they open it really quickly, creates this negative vacuum, and they slurp down the food. And so you can see here this beautiful, again, graceful swimmers. Um, and we occasionally get to see uh, this from museum specimens. This is a deep, a hairy anglerfish that's been at the British Museum for a while. They never wanted to cut it open because it's a pretty rare fish. They didn't want to disturb it, but they eventually took a CAT scan and they found that it had a very large fish curled up in its stomach. So anglerfish, because they have this highly distendable body, belly, this large mouth, they can actually eat organisms that are uh, significantly larger than themselves. However, sometimes they bite off a little more than they can chew. Um, this, this is a dreamer that was found floating at the surface off the coast of Papua New Guinea with a, uh, it, this, this fish is about this long, and it was found with a foot-long grenadier sticking out of its mouth. <laughs> it's thought that the fish, the mouth was so full that it couldn't pump its gills and it probably suffocated. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, they both died. But um, in term, for football fish, uh, very little's known about their diet. A lot of these large females that we find, these big ones that wash up on beaches, tend to have e empty stomachs, um, which may, may give us a clue on what's going on there. Um, but the ones that have been found with, with prey in their stomachs, it, it's, it seems to generally be you know, kind of a mix of, of what you'd expect, general prey items from the deep sea, invertebrates and fish. Um, but there seems to be a predominance of cephalopods, of squid um, in their diet. And it's thought that, you know, I mentioned those papillae on their face. It's, they're really slick, so it's thought that maybe that might help with keep preventing the squid's arms from sticking to the fish's face because they, they, they aren't able to get an adhesive surface. Um, but for Pacific football fish, nobody's ever actually found one with a full stomach. So when we picked up the specimen um, on the, on the, from Swami's, I was handling it and noticed there was a big mass in its stomach, and I got really excited. You know, and so I took an x-ray. We have an x-ray machine, and I saw these very opaque lumps. And I was like, what, what are those? They're not, they don't seem like clamshells. I don't really know what's going on here. So when we were getting ready to preserve it, I made a small incision on the side of the fish. You usually do this to help the preservative fluids get into the body. And I stuck my finger in and kind of felt around and realized the fish is full of sand. <laughs> so unfortunately, we didn't find what Pacific football fish eat, but we did find a lot of sand inside of the football fish. So. As I mentioned, football, uh, football fishes and other anglerfishes have evolved some pretty amazing way of dealing with finding food in the deep ocean. They let the food come to them. But anglerfish have also evolved a very unique way of dealing with another problem faced by fish in the deep sea, but all organisms on the planet, and that's finding a mate. So all of the fish here are female anglerfishes. Male anglerfish look quite different. They tend to look like, uh, as a friend said the other night, curious jelly beans. Um, <laughs> male anglerfish uh, tend, they don't have the big teeth, they don't have the lure, um, and they actually don't feed as adults. Once they develop out of their larval stage, they're just, all they have is the nutrients that they, or the uh, nutrition that they built up 
um, as a larvae. What they ate as a larvae, they have this big liver, and that's their energy source. And kind of their only real goal as adults is to try to reproduce as quickly as possible before they run out of energy. Um, so here is, a, I guess, an example of how big a male anglerfish is. Um, male anglerfishes tend to be, on average, this is a, this is a male football fish. Um, they tend to be, on average, 10 to 60 times smaller than the female because they don't fe feed as adults. Um, but what they do have going for them is very generally, where, not all species, but most of them have very well-developed eyes and these huge nostrils. They've also lost the teeth in their jaw, and they've grown these, these bones called denticular bones that are kind of these weird little hooks. Um, and so what the, what the, what, presumably what's going on here, how they're able to find a mate, is they're using these eyes and nose to, um, and this is, oh, sorry, this is a diagram of what the jaw looks like. Um, in there without a super, super weird. Um, I can talk about that more later. But they use this eyes and this nose to hone in on maybe a scent being given off by the female in the water column and may maybe something to recognizing with her lure. And they swim up to her. And this is the artistic rendition <laughs> of what that may look like, her being plagued by the males. And in some species of anglerfish, in most species of anglerfish, once the male finds the female, he swims up and he uses those special teeth to kind of latch on. And... You see him down here, latched onto her belly. This, it's thought that maybe once he latches down, this stimulates her, uh, you know, tells her body it's time to produce a batch of eggs. She produces a batch of eggs, releases the eggs into the water column. He's hanging on to her, releases uh, sperm, fertilizes those eggs. The fertilized eggs float away into the water column. At this point, presumably, the male anglerfish has done his job. I don't know. Um, he probably doesn't have the energy to keep swimming, so he lets go. That's the end of the anglerfish, and the female continues, continues on her way. And this is actually probably, as far as we can tell, what happens in, in, Pacific fo in, in football fishes. Um, the males latch on temporarily and then let go. But in, in about 25 species of anglerfish, it gets a lot weirder. Once the males bite down, they're there for good. Um, so once these males bite down... Skin grows out of the front of their head. Skin grows away from the female's body. This tissue actually eventually fuses. And then, as you can see in this uh, kind of grotesque little image down here, the blood vessels of their bodies actually fuse together. His blood flows into her body. Her blood flows into his body. Very romantic. Um, they actually become fused. He becomes part of her. They become a single or self-reproducing organism. And the males are attached for life. You know, it's kind of thought that, at least the, the general story is that, you know, once they do this, they just <laughs> become pretty much a pair of testes hanging off the female. But, um, you know, evidence shows that the males still have a little autonomy. They, they um, have an opening. They still potentially use their gills. Their gills are still really well-developed, and they actually can still move. Their muscles are not completely atrophied, at least in some species. So they're hanging out, but their face is completely melted into the side of the female, so I don't know <laughs> what's going on there. Um, a lot of times they attach to the belly area. That's the best spot for them to be to fertilize eggs as they're released. Um, but sometimes they miss, and we don't really quite know why. So here's some fun examples of that. Uh, here's a male that went for the middle of her forehead. This one I really like because they're kissing um, for life. And then you have, uh, here's a diagram of one that fused to her lure, probably not the most advantageous. And, then, um, it's, and it's not always uh, adult females that they go for. This is a mature male that is fused to an immature female. It's pretty inappropriate. <laughs> um, but um, a fused uh, male anglerfish actually is one of the smallest uh, sexually mature vertebrates. This is an anglerfish um, that, I, that we have here at Scripps. 
called uh, Photocoronis Photo spiniceps. Um, she's about 50 millimeters long, and on her back is a six millimeter long male anglerfish. It's about the size of a pencil eraser. Um, for a period of time, this was a Guinness World Record holder for the smallest vertebrate. Unfortunately, um, in recent years, a smaller frog has been discovered. Um, <laughs> um, but then there's also been a really hot debate over whether or not this can be considered the smallest because there's some species of fish, you know, the females are huge, right? But there are some species of fish where both sexes are very small, such as a um, species of pygmy goby described by our very own H.J. Walker a couple years ago um, that has an average size of seven millimeters. <laughs> um, in a lot of these, of these uh, anglerfish that attach, it seems to be a one-to-one -one ratio, one male to one female. But there's not a lot of specimens. We've only ever collected maybe about 400 or so specimens of these. Um, but in some species, it seems to be a little bit more elaborate. This is the current world record holder. Um, she's called the Queen of the Abyss. This is a specimen of um, the triple wart sea devil that was collected off the coast of Japan in 2001 that has eight males attached to, to one female. <laughs> and you can make whatever joke you want. I'm not going to. <laughs> um, so you may be asking, you know, how do they fuse? How are they able to do this? And this is a question that people have postulated for, for decades on. Unfortunately, anglerfish are so rarely collected, and it's even more rare to find one with a male attached, that we, haven't, you know, we can't like, raise these in the lab to look at you know, how genes and proteins are being transcribed, how the immune system is working. But we're just now starting to get into, by looking at their genomes, at least to try to understand what genes are involved in the process. So a recent study that just came out a couple years ago by Swan et al., looked at a couple genes related to, uh, that, they, that are important to coding for the immune system, uh, for the adaptive immune system, and that may have a response when you try to graft tissue. Um, this is like, you know, you, you can't get a transplant from somebody who doesn't have the same blood type of you or your body will reject it, these, and that's because of these immune genes. So they found that anglerfish, their, well, their, their relatives, have all, this, the whole suite of those genes. But anglerfish with temporary attachment have some of these genes suppressed or that don't even code. So they're knocking out parts of their immune system. And when you look at anglerfish with a one-to-one -one female to male ratio, even more of those genes are knocked out. You, you've knocked out some of the, t, the genes that code for T cells. And then when you look at the anglerfish that have multiple partners, where you have eight females on one male, almost all of the genes related to their adaptive immune system are completely inactive or missing from their genome. This is astounding. This means they don't really have an adaptive immune system in the way that other vertebrates like us do. So if this thing you know, gets exposed to coronavirus, it's gone in a second because it doesn't have an adaptive immune system. But they seem to be living, so what are they doing? It seems that perhaps these anglerfish have evolved an immune system that works completely differently than most other vertebrates. An amazing area for new research. Um, so uh, back to the football fish. The, kind of the last question um, that a lot of folks have asked, why, why so many? Why three in one year after 20 years? Why three? Um, you have people all the way over in Manhattan asking these questions. Um, so here's the last one that washed up here in San Diego on Del Mar, Dog Beach in Del Mar. Luckily, they got there before the dogs did. Um, and this was brought in in December 2001, almost exactly 20 years ago. Um, and so people have thrown out some answers. Unfortunately, I don't necessarily have a good answer. But people thought maybe the oil spill in Orange County. I mentioned that somebody thought this was a tar ball. Well, if, there, if, if it was affecting marine organisms, it wouldn't just be three super rare deep sea fish. You'd see a whole bunch of stuff washing up on the beach. So we don't think that was the cause. 
Um, maybe it was those DDT barrels from a couple of years ago. That one I saw thrown out online a lot. Those DDT barrels have been there for decades, and they're 65 miles away. Why would they start affecting random deep sea fish here? So maybe it is something environmental, something with this time of year. Uh, looking at the records, you know, a lot of times they are kind of found in winter, late fall, early winter. Maybe it has something to do with that. Actually, it might also have something to do with their life cycle. All of the ones that are found on beaches are very large females. And, and, but, but when you cut them open, their stomachs are empty. Also, their ovaries are not developed, so they're probably past reproductive age. Maybe this is a senescence thing. Once they're dead, they get a little, or they're not once they're dead. Once they're old, they get a little closer to shore, and they kind of just uh, come in that way. We don't really know. I like to think it was just a lucky year for us. We haven't really seen any sense. Um, hopefully, we'll see more. And maybe this is an indication that there are more, that the population of football fish off the coast of California has kind of increased in recent years. But I'm glad that we got the specimen because there's still so much we can learn about these, about these specimens. I you know, took tissue samples. We can look at its genetics. Uh, uh, Lauren Martin, who's in the room here, is helping provide uh, genetic samples of this fish as we speak. Um, we can also look at isotopes in the muscle to kind of figure out their trophic position, how, what they're eating, what they're related to. We can take a closer look at that internal anatomy. I just took a quick peek, but we can get this thing in a CT scanner, really make sure there's nothing in its stomach, uh, learn a little bit more about that, and also take a look at maybe some parasites that might be living inside the fish. So we can keep asking a lot of questions from keeping that specimen, not just throwing it back or taking pictures and walking away to post on Instagram. Uh, in fact, one of these fish um, has actually already led to a paper. The fish that the Dr. Lute collected, or uh, brought to the Los Angeles County Museum, he examined with his collection manager, Dr. Todd Clardy, and found that when they looked at the ESCA under a blue light with a special filter, it was biofluorescent. So biofluorescence is a little different than bioluminescence. Biofluorescence, well, if you come to the lecture next month, apparently there's going to be a lot of talk about fluorescence. But this is when a, a protein structure absorbs light and re-emits it at a different wavelength. Um, so blue light comes in, and it goes out as kind of bright green or red um, or orange. And it's just recently that it's been discovered that, that not just invertebrates, but fishes and, and mammals and birds have biofluorescent signatures. When you look at them with a special filter, they light up these beautiful colors. It's thought this may be related to species interspecies communication because they have a special lens. So the football fish was found to have biofluorescence, but not all over its body, only around the tip of the bulb. And it's maybe, maybe it could be that the light coming out of the bulb was being re-emitted and used to maybe signal the males, hey, this is where the female is, so they can find her. We don't really know, but it's a really amazing discovery that we just, from one of these football fish. And last but not least, you know, these football fish have uh, led to scientific investigation and discovery, but they've inspired folks beyond the realm of science. Um, you know, one thing I like to highlight is some of the art that's come from these football fish. Uh, Kyotaku artist Dwight Wang, who's actually in the room this evening, uh, w was invited to come down and utilize a charcoal to make these beautiful uh, prints of our, not just our football fish, but also the Los Angeles County football fish. And this art can go on to inspire folks all over the world to, to want to learn more about these fish. So I'm going to leave it here with a hope that you can take away some appreciation of the truly immense diversity of life on this planet, especially when it comes to fishes. Uh, this group, anglerfishes, were super inspirational to me growing up. I just, like, there's so much going on uh, with these. I always wanted to learn more. And every, every time we collect one of these, they're so rare, we can find out something new. 
how did it evolve to do that? That's amazing, and that's something that drives me, and I hope you know can also drive your interest in the ocean and the biodiversity that that lives there. Um, thank you for coming to this talk. Will you have an opportunity to see if there's microplastics in his stomach um, or in his body? Well, the specimen's preserved in the, the collection, so hopefully uh, somebody, a researcher who specializes in that type of thing, I don't, I don't really study microplastics, can maybe come visit the collection and uh, examine the specimen for that type of thing. I've already made an, you know, an incision in the side, so it's easy enough to investigate the internal cavity. And I will say, the football fish that we have from 2001, the entire digestive tract was re removed by uh, the scientists here at Scripps, um, so we have that preserved separately for people to examine the specimen from 2001 as well. I don't know if you would have the data to answer this, but in fireflies that also have, you know, lights flashing, they have some devious females that mimic males of different species, and when they come to mate, they get eaten. Did these guys do something like that to try to attract the male of a different anglerfish species? You know, anglerfish have only... It's been observed in the wild a handful of times. I think they've only been filmed maybe about a dozen times, and they've never been filmed feeding, and they've only been filmed once with a male attached to a female, so nobody really knows if they would do something like that. Um, but, you know, there's, it's possible. Although these, are, these organisms are living in the deep ocean. It's the largest habitat on the planet, but it's also one of the, the uh, where organisms are very spread out. It's very, very low productivity. So the anglerfish are pretty much just hovering there, and honestly, they're probably just going to eat whatever comes by. <laughs> they're so spiny and, and thorny. Do they have predators who eat them? Well, so that's, uh, I mentioned briefly that they've been found in sperm whale stomachs, but beyond sperm whales, the only, you know, they've been, the smaller anglerfish have been found in the stomachs of things like lancetfish, which is a, a deep sea lizardfish that's fairly common in the open ocean, um, and things such as gulper eels and a couple other predators. But in terms of big female football fish, no, they've only ever been found in these sperm whales. <laughs> so what's the pressure these, these fish are in their natural environment? I mean, so these go down to over 11,000 feet down. Yeah, so, so what, what's the pressure, pressure at that level? I mean, are these, are these animals much more collapsed in, in that state? Uh, no, because, um, well, if they don't have gas in their body, it's not really affecting the, uh, there's, there's no, no volume to be impacted by the pressure. Um, one thing that can happen is, especially if, you know, they're adapted to living in very, very cold water. Um, down in the deep ocean, it's almost near zero. It's near freezing, very cold. So when they're brought into shallow water or when they wash up on beaches, you know, right here at the beach, it's like 60, 65 degrees, maybe in the summertime, it's the 70s, really nice. Um, that really high temperature can impact a lot of the uh, chemical structure of their body. Think about, you know, if you, you heat up something that's glued together, that glue gets warm, starts to kind of melt apart, and that can happen to some of these deep sea fish. So that's that's really kind of, you know, how they might be affected by that change. And then I guess an ancillary question, uh, you know, it's what, about five degrees uh, Celsius down where these animals are. Do they have antifreeze proteins in their blood to keep? As far as we know, they do not because the deep ocean never gets, never gets completely to zero, at least in, unless you get into like the Antarctic. So I'm wondering, with an animal that you only have 30 specimens of, how do you determine how large they get if you have an adult or if it's a sub-adult? 
or if it's something that actually morphs with time or yeah, that's um, you know that's something that's actually fairly difficult to determine. The largest uh, f football fi Pacific football fish specimen is the one that washed up on Del Mar in Del Mar in 2001. That thing's about 16 inches long. Um, but we have sexually mature males, males with ripe ovaries, so we have to dissect them and look at you know their uh, sorry ripe testes. Uh, we have to look at their their reproductive organs. And so like this this little male right here, this is. Uh, I, one thing I didn't mention is male football fishes are actually the largest free-living male anglerfish. They get up to a massive size of about an inch and a half. Um, and this, you know, this fish right here is sexually mature. Um, but the large females, almost all the time they, when they've been examined, their eggs aren't ripe, their ovaries aren't developed. So we don't know what's going on there. We don't know if it's they've already matured and are you know, at old age or what, we don't know what is, what's happening um, in, the, in the situations. And unfortunately, it's tough to find out. But for anglerfish as a whole, it's mostly looking at the development of their, their reproductive organs. Well, Ben, I want to thank you. That was really fascinating. Really appreciate you coming here. Really appreciate you all joining us for this uh, relaunch and, and hope to see you next month. Thanks very much for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.